James chapter 2. Why don't you turn there? This is, in many ways, a very difficult passage. Um, and uh, one that might require a little time. So we'll see how that goes. I'm hoping to uh, proceed quickly through this, but I make no promises, right? I don't want to make promises I can't keep. <laughs> Let us hear God's word. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab, the prostitute, justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Let's pray. Father, we cannot chain your word, but we do ask that you would let it loose to accomplish your good purposes in our hearts this morning. I ask that you would convict us of our sin, that you would comfort us in our struggles, that you would change us into Christ's likeness, that you would commend us for faith-filled obedience. I ask that you would be at work in us this morning according to the riches that we have by faith in Christ Jesus. Amen. This passage, as I mentioned, it's not just difficult, it is controversial. This is the reason why Martin Luther at one point called the epistle of James the epistle of straw. He thought it was worthless. Because he thought, for a while anyway, that what James said was contradictory to what Paul said. And it wasn't just Luther who thought that, or who argued that. We see that the Roman Catholic Church, in response to the proclamation of justification by faith alone, it came up with this passage and said, no, no, it can't be. And this passage was one of the ones that really made the break clear in the Reformation. 
But the controversy doesn't die then. It continues on even today because you have people like Bishop N.T. Wright who are arguing for a position in which, though faith is a... By initially, we're justified by faith in terms of this ethnic badge kind of thing that he's got going on. He has a different understanding of what Paul says than what we would have about what Paul says. But he says about a future justification that is pointed to here in places like James chapter 2, that we are justified by our works. Gets confusing, doesn't it? Important passage, isn't it? So let us hear... Let us try and reckon with what God says in this passage to us. The big idea that uh, we should have from this passage is that living by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ produces obedience. We'll get to why that is really important in a little bit. The context here, if we've looking, been looking at James, is that he's focused in this section uh, that started at the end of chapter 1 on obedience. Okay? He talks about it in different ways. He talks about it in terms of doing the word. He talks about it in in, in terms of obeying the law. He talks about it in terms of a contrast with worldliness. And some of those themes are kind of brought up in here, but but he adds a new theme to this, faith. And the question becomes, what is the character of real faith? That's the context that we walk into. And so I, I, I struggled with this first point, particularly because of the way in which I expressed this. So here we go anyway. Faith that doesn't do anything isn't anything. A faith that doesn't do anything isn't anything. James engages in a good diatribe as he begins to attack worldliness and passivity that can often take place under the guise of Christianity and the gospel. He has a particular set of people in his sights right now, and these are very different than the people that the the Apostle Paul had in his sights in places like Romans and Galatians and Ephesians and everything else that he wrote. There's a different person in the sights here, and this is a person who is passive, And he's going to go after these people in this text. And he does this in the form of a diatribe. And he asks a lot of questions in the midst of this. And one that he asks twice is, what good is it? Verses 14 and 17. In other words, is there any advantage, is there any benefit to a faith that lacks works? Now, this benefit can refer both to something temporal or earthly and something that is eternal, heavenly. Is there an earthly benefit to such a faith? Is there a heavenly benefit to such a faith? James asks this another way. Can that faith, one that is without works, can that faith save him? He addresses the heavenly one. First, it's a rhetorical question. It took me a long time to understand the concept of a rhetorical question. My, my high school high, uh, history professor was frustrated by my lack of knowledge as to what a rhetorical question was. 
because I would always raise my hand and try to answer the rhetorical question. <laughs> James is not expecting you to raise your hand and the answer is clear. No. That kind of faith, he's expecting them to say, cannot save anybody. And he, he seeks to prove this in a couple of ways. But what we're looking at is this idea that faith equals justification. Sounds good, right? Don't we, and the, as, as members of the Reformation, as, as good Protestants and as good Presbyterians say that justification is by faith alone? It's partially true. We'll get to what I mean by that in a little bit. Uh, we're, gonna scare, we're not going to scare anybody or anything. Okay, they're assenting truth. There, are, there is truth in that statement, but that statement is not the whole truth. Okay? That was the problem. They thought that was the whole truth. They thought that merely assenting to the truth would save you. And he lays out two examples, two negative examples for them. And then he's going to match those with two positive examples that, to make his point. The first one is he brings out the response to the poor Christian. He says that someone comes in or there is a brother or sister who lacks clothing and who lacks food. Now, there's something that's going on in this text that uh, we're going to see again when we get to the idea of justification and the, the use of his word there that is also brought up in here. And so I want to illustrate it here so we kind of get the point there. Is the, the word that he uses for lax clothing is gymnos. Sound familiar to anybody? Yes, the gym. When I was in middle school, actually in school period, we had gym clothes, right? There were certain clothes that you wore only to gym. And there were certain clothes that the Greeks wore to gym so to speak, the gymnasium. And in that particular case, it was no clothes. I can't even want to, I don't even want to think about that, really. I mean, the 80s were bad enough in the NBA, right? <laughs> you know, Larry, you see the old clips of the NBA and Larry Bird and everyone else have those really short, tight things going on. And the 90s were a huge improvement on the shorts that the NBA wore. Um, but, you know, we all... Those of us who grew up in the 80s and had gym class, we all had those shorts, didn't we? Okay. Originally, that word referred to being stripped naked to be, being bare, but over time, that the, the meaning of that term was expanded. Uh, it could mean even someone who was without their outer garment but still had their inner garments. And we see that precisely in the Gospel of Matthew when it talks about Peter having stripped off his outer garment when he was fishing. Okay, He was without the outer garment, but he was still dressed. He wasn't anashral as he was fishing. Okay, And so what's going on here is not that the people who are Christians, who are poor, are anashral, what it means here is that these people lacked proper clothing. They pro most likely lacked an outer garment. And if you don't have an outer garment, you're cold. That's what we were in Flagstaff this year. We've lived in Florida 
all my kids' lives. And we moved here, and we, you know, when we would go back to New York, you know, they'd have lots of cousins to borrow winter clothes from, and they would be nice and toasty. We're going to go to Flagstaff this winter, you know, this past winter. We didn't have clothes for the kids. <laughs> okay, we ended up borrowing some, but still, Jaden was like very, very cold when we went to the volcano. Okay? So these people were without this very thing. They were without daily food. They did not have enough to eat on a regular basis. And so this is what qualifies their poorness. And what happens is they say basically, essentially, God will provide, but not through me. That's the meaning of be be warm and well-fed. But he says, you, you, you bless them with your words, but you don't bless them with what they need. You didn't provide for them. Can such a faith that acts like that do anything? He says it's dead. That's his verdict. Such a faith is dead. It has no life to it. It is not a biblical faith. He compares it later on to a body without a spirit. There is, the body cannot exist without the spirit, right? There is supposed to be, there's a oneness that is supposed to be, to take place between these things. Your spirit can't exist without a body, and in fact it does. But once the spirit leaves the body, the body is dead. And he says that essentially a faith like that without works is like a body without a spirit. Nothing's happening. It's dead. It's inanimate. It will not produce anything. The second example that he gives, okay, is one of... Basically, doctrinal orthodoxy. Okay. Says, oh, you believe there is one God. He's, he's, he's referring to the Shema that we find in Deuteronomy 6, that the Lord is one. Okay, he says, oh, you believe that, do you? <laughs> Good. <laughs> but then he throws out this. The demons believe this. Get that. The demons believe this. Satan and the demons have accurate theology. They know what is true. But they hate it. It says here, They shudder. They live in fear of God. They do not see the truth as good, but as something to be hated, to be resisted, not to be trusted. They do not love God. That is one. What is such a faith? He says it's useless. It doesn't produce what faith is intended to produce. What does this look like since none of you are demons, right? Yes, none of you are demons. They don't have bodies. It's Sunday morning faith. It's the faith that comes in. It sits down. It stands when it's supposed to. It raises its hands perhaps during a worship song. It bows its head when there's prayers that are made. But all it is good for is showing up to church. There's no, there's no obedience in the greater part of life. It is useless. And James says, can such a faith save? The rhetorical answer being, 
Right. And so a faith that doesn't produce anything, if it doesn't produce obedience, it's dead. And a dead faith will not receive God's promises. Okay, so a faith that doesn't do anything isn't anything. Let's move to the second point here, is that God's goal for faith is earthly obedience. Or one of his goals is earthly obedience. Yes, I added a word to you, uh, for you there in your outline. James then moves to two positive examples to show what faith is, to prove his point, and this is where the controversy really begins to bubble up and have lots of fun here, okay? So the first off, he uses Abraham. And if you're going to argue with Jewish Christians, that's a good place to start. And in fact, it's the place where Paul would, uh, would start too, Abraham. In Romans, what does he do to bring up his example in, Rome, in Romans 4? Abraham. Later he gets to David, but he starts with Abraham. So James is moving in the right direction. He picks the right guy. He says Abraham, Abraham whose faith resulted in obedience. Okay. Where in the first example there was no love toward people, God's people, and the second example that he, did, he gave, there was no love towards God. Now we have sort of the reverse order for the good stuff. There is love for God in Abraham. God says, take your son, your only son, the son you love, and bring him to a mountain I will show him, show you, and sacrifice him there to me. Okay? The dynamics of Abraham's obedience is private. It's not a public obedience. It's a private obedience because it's just him, it's God, and it's Isaac. And there he offers his son. He shows his complete devotion to God. In this, okay. So it, it's there's this love for God, but but catch this: this act of obedience to which James refers takes place three decades after God credits his faith as righteousness to him. And note, James knows this precisely because James quotes from Genesis 15 where God says, and God credited this, this to him as righteousness. Okay? James understands this. James is not a moron. Okay? He knows that there is this great time span between the faith that he had and his justification before God and what is going on right now in terms of his obedience. And he's saying that that faith produced that obedience. Okay? Very important for us to grasp that. He goes on to explain this, that faith and works were active with one another. The word he uses in the Greek is synergy. That's a familiar word, isn't it? To work alongside and to work with one another. And, that, and that's part of why we, we can say that this is really, he's talking about sanctification here. He's not talking about justification here because justification is mono, monergistic. One works. Okay? But here he's pointing to the reality of sanctification in which both work. There is synergy, as the Westminster Confession of Faith talks about. Okay? They're working together to accomplish God's purpose. He defines that, so to speak, in this idea that 
his faith was completed by his works. This has the idea of being brought to an end, being brought to its goal. And so when God gives us the gift of faith, it's not an end in of itself. It is a means unto something greater. And one of the things it is a means to is earthly obedience. Okay? Saving faith is not just to qualify you for heaven, but God has earthly plans for that faith. Holiness. Which apparently what was what the church he was writing to was lacking at that point in time. And James had to say harsh things to them. Even as again, he softens this with the idea of my brothers. My brothers. My brothers. So he's gently rebuking them. What's interesting to me is that Martin Luther, who initially called this the Epistle of Straw, in the introduction to his uh, epistle, uh, sorry, epistle, commentary on the Epistle to the Romans, wrote this Oh, it is a living, busy, active, mighty thing, this faith. It is impossible for it not to be doing good things incessantly. He's basically saying what James is saying. Okay? James would go, Amen, brother. You got it, Martin. You may have for a time thought I wasn't on the same page with you, but you know what? We really are on the same page. We're together in this. Let's move to his second example, and we'll... we'll get to kind of both of them again in a little bit, looking at it from a different perspective. The second example is Rahab. Okay? Can you get any more different from Abraham than Rahab? Honestly. Okay? Uh, Abraham, man, obviously. Okay? The, the head of his family. The one to whom the promises were given. The man who left everything and went to a land he didn't know. Okay, a man who, yes, he had some faults, but in the big scheme of things, from a human perspective, not too bad. He had a problem with deceit. Uh, okay, you know, he had some bad decisions. Uh, okay, Rahab, obviously a woman, one to whom the promise was not given, one to whom the promised land was about to be taken from, or one from whom the promised land was about to be taken. Prostitute. Okay? Not little sinner. Big sinner. Okay? James is trying to communicate something about how this is, you know, bigger than we think it is. Grace is bigger than we think it is. Because grace finds even Rahab, a Gentile, outside of the promises and brings her into the promises. Okay, this woman, Rahab, this, as he again says, prostitute, this immoral woman, risks her life precisely because she hears about the greatness of the Israelites' God and wants a part. And so when the spies come to Jericho, her city, she acts like a traitor to Jericho in order to embrace the promises of God to his people. She protects them. She 
misleads the soldiers who come looking for them. She risks everything. Her obedience was far more quick to take place than Abraham's. 30 years, a couple of days. Okay? So we see the, the variety in the, in the examples that he gives. His was a love to God. Hers was a love to God's people. She protected God's people. Okay? And so we see, or we're reminded that, that saving faith, as Douglas Moo says here, is, is to the Lord Jesus Christ. And because faith is to the Lord Jesus Christ, this implies an obedience that should take place in this world because he is the Lord. We, we in the Reformed camp don't have this problem that the dispensationalists had of the lordship controversy between MacArthur and the guys from Dallas Theological Seminary. Okay? That, that doesn't resonate very well with us. We kind of go, Jesus is Lord. I mean, we repent. That implies that we're supposed to be obedient. And, and that's what he's sort of reminding them of. A faith that recognizes the lordship of Jesus Christ is one that is going to grow in obedience. Notice the pattern that we see in Hebrews chapter 11. Turn there for a moment if you have a Bible. Verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. Okay? His faith influenced his worship. Um, trying to get to Noah here. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerned, concerning ev- uh, events he had not seen in reverent fear, constructed an ark. By faith, he built an ark. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out from a place that he was to receive an inheritance. So Abraham left by faith. Abraham, uh, Noah built by faith. By faith, Abraham went to live in the land of promise, verse 9. Okay? By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive. That was not something she actually did, but she considered God faithful who promised. Okay? We see in 17, by faith... Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. Okay? This connects the previous example to faith. And so it continues. Okay? It was because of Moses, the, the faith of Moses' parents that they hid him for three months. Okay? The pattern in Scripture that we see in, in Hebrews 11 is that faith produces obedience to God. This is so clear, it should be so clear that if there is no obedience, we should begin to inquire as to the nature of our faith. The passage that Marty read for us this morning, Matthew 25, sort of makes this kind of clear to us in a lot of ways. It's set at the end of time when Jesus has come again, he's separating the sheep from the goats. And here's the thing, the sheep don't know their sheep, and the, so to speak. 
Well, maybe they do know they're sheep. But the goats don't think they're goats. <laughs> they probably think they're sheep. There's this idea of it's a mixed church that, that we find in Scripture, contrary to what some of our other brothers might believe. Their acts were produced by their faith. Okay? They are not saved by their works in that passage, but they did it because they believed God's word, that they were to do certain things. So that's why that's what leads John Piper to say, if obedience does not emerge by faith, we have no warrant to believe we are united to Christ or justified. Okay? And I will say one pastoral thing about this before I move to the, the last point. Okay? So I want to be clear here. Some of you have very tender consciences. Okay? James is not talking about absolute, total, complete obedience. So don't sit, don't, please do not hear from James that, man, if you struggle with a particular sin, it's, you're not really saved. That's not what he's saying. What was happening is that these people had nothing, no obedience. James would recognize the presence of sin in the life of believers. But James is saying there should be progressive growth in obedience. So, look at the whole of your life. Don't look at one thing that you know you struggle with and go, does that mean mean I'm not a Christian? That's not his point. Please don't hear that. But if you look at the totality of your life and you go, man, there ain't nothing start to wonder. Start to cry out to God for mercy. Okay? So, God's design for saving faith is that it produces earthly obedience. Our third thing this morning is that saving faith manifests itself in obedient love, which is sort of what we saw in those two examples. I'm just kind of drawing it out a little more clearly in this. But I want to hit that, that idea of, of manifests. It manifests itself because James says that the Scripture was fulfilled. Now, we can talk about that in a couple different ways. And one which some people have tried to use, but it's not true, is that it's as if Genesis 15 was a prophecy. <laughs> like as if it was a prophecy that he will be justified. No, it wasn't a prophecy okay, of what would take place. But what happens here has this idea more of that the Scripture was brought to completion in Abraham's obedience. And by that, okay, Abraham, who in Genesis 15 was declared to be righteous, in Genesis 22, acted righteously. Okay? Not only is he declared righteous, but he begins to actually be righteous. And that should be taking place in our lives. That's sanctification. Becoming righteous. Okay? But then he mentions this phrase, and this is the phrase that everyone trips over. This is a difficult phrase. He uses it three times. We have to reckon with this. He says it about Abraham, and he says it about Rahab, and he, the phrase is, they were justified by their works. Now, isn't that fun? 
Doesn't that sort of muddy the water just a little bit? Okay? We have to understand what this means or we end up in big, big trouble. If we misunderstand this, we are in huge problems. This is the crux of the issue here. It is on the basis of this passage in particular that the the church of Rome has said that faith plus works produces justification. Here it is. This is it. Why does Rome believe what Rome believes? Right here. Okay? So we're, 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 we, do we go in that direction? Or do we go in, in a different direction that says that faith equals justification plus works? That's what the Reformation went with. Okay? Precisely for some of the reasons I've already mentioned in that Okay, the the obedience took place three decades after he was declared to be justified. We've got to keep this whole thing in context here and, 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 and so forth. Okay, part of the context we have to keep in mind is that James is responding to false teaching. He is not responding to Paul's theology. From what we can tell, this was written before the council in Jerusalem. This was written before probably any other New Testament epistle, with the exception perhaps of Galatians. So James probably did not know exactly what was being reputedly taught by Paul. But there was a problem in that a misunderstanding about grace was taking place among these people. And he's addressing that. They thought, hey man, I'm saved by grace. It doesn't matter what I do. I can do whatever I want. And so they were abusing grace. They were using justification by faith alone as a license for their sin. That is what James is going after. Paul, on the other hand, was going after, as I said, the legalists. The people who said, you have to obey to be justified. You must be circumcised to be justified. And so he's going after a very different problem. Okay. Cheap grace versus legalism. James is shooting after the guys who believe in the cheap grace. Remember we talked about range of meaning with gymnos? That, that, you know, it, can, it can mean a variety of things. And, and depending on the context, you have to choose which of those variety of things it means. My professors would put it this way, meaning is use. You look at the context and see how it's used, and that's the meaning of the term because there's multiple meanings to most words. Well, there's two meanings for the word that we find that's translated justification. One is to be declared just or righteous, to be accepted in God's presence, and the other is vindication. Meaning, his faith vindicated by his works. His works showed that he actually possessed saving, real, live, active faith. Which is the position of the Protestants in the Reformation. Okay? Precisely because they believed, okay, the whole formula went this way. We are justified by faith alone, but not a faith that is alone. Okay? What, we're, what we as Protestants and as Presbyterians believe 
it's not that we're saved by our faith and our works, but we are saved by our faith that we might do works. Okay? That is a huge, important distinction that needs to be made. Okay? James is not using justification the same way Paul used justification. All right? But these works manifest the reality of their faith. These works are evidence not only of their faith, but of regeneration. Okay? Getting back to that theological argument, I have, I have these things I call my cav, cavalero corollaries, things that are true. And one of the things that are true is that necessarily the more you argue a point with someone else, the farther you tend to both get from the truth. Okay? People get more extreme in their positions the more they argue the point. Okay? Do you believe that? Have you seen it? That's what's going that's tend to be what what was going on here is that his opponents were getting farther and farther from the truth, and we see this taking place even today. I've seen arguments about the nature of justification and the way some of these people speak is that, or in right, is that if you say anything about works as a manifestation of faith, then somehow they think you've compromised the doctrine of justification. No, I'm just teaching what the Westminster Confession of Faith says about good works, that they are necessary as evidence. We have to believe the whole Bible, not just a sliver of it. We have to believe, as Presbyterians, the whole confession, not just the parts we like. People whose consciences are captive to the Word of God is what we should be. And so what happens or what should be happening, if we keep this in the context of this letter, particularly for James, is that, is that these, these works, this obedience should flow naturally, so to speak, from a regenerate heart that he talks about, you have been born again by the word and the implanted word. Okay? So this is a context of grace. And there's, there's not the self-consciousness that, that we might think about, you know, kind of like, kind of this way. I say I believe. You know, I, I ought to help that guy. Otherwise... I have got nothing on my list. <laughs> okay? i got to show that I believe because I'm going to... It's, it's not that kind of self-conscious thing that James is talking about. It's just, it's just like what we read about in Matthew 25 when the sheep go, when did we do this? Really? We went to visit you in prison? We fed you? We clothed you? What? Okay? It arises naturally. It is, it is a response that comes because you see a need and the Holy Spirit within you, the implanted word, reminds you to love that person. Okay? So this is not some sort of artificial, well, I've got to do, you know, I'm a, I'm a Boy Scout, I've got to do my one good deed a day kind of thing. But this, but this is something that flows out of our regeneration. It is almost unconscious to us. We're not thinking about it in terms of, I must do this if I'm really saved. It's love. 
So, These works do not justify us before God in terms of they don't gain our acceptance, but they are actually the fruit, not the root of our salvation. Huge difference. That's why Calvin writes, We allow that good works are required for righteousness. We only take away from them the power of conferring righteousness. Did you catch that? He's saying, we do them because we are righteous by faith. They do not make us righteous. Okay? Did you catch that difference? He says, because they cannot stand before the tribunal of God. Because even our best works are not perfect. They're tainted by our sin. But yet, because of grace, they're accepted by the Father. So, And this is all the same whether you're a patriarch like Abraham or a converted Gentile prostitute like Rahab. And most of us, I think, fall somewhere in between. Right? So, so you're here in this place right now because you believe something about God. If there is no love for God, if there is no love for your brothers and sisters that is demonstrated in love and service, then James would say, you may have orthodox beliefs, but that's all you have. So you really have nothing. You won't benefit. Others won't benefit from this thing you call faith. But true saving faith is revealed in obedient love and loving obedience. And that earthly obedience does not gain our acceptance with God. But rather it is a sign that we have been accepted by God. And His Spirit is working in us in sanctification. That's it. I guess I could have said that in two minutes, huh? Let's pray. Father, we all struggle with um, theological controversy. We all tend to move towards extremes and to miss what the scriptures are saying. And we ask that your spirit would help us to hang on to, to what you are saying in this letter. Not perfect obedience, but definitely progressive obedience. Not something that's produced by the flesh, but something that is produced by the new heart that you have put there. Save us from false condemnation just as much from false, as from false confession. We seem caught between the flesh and the accuser. But help us to hear the voice of the Good Shepherd who laid down His life for the sheep. Jesus, through whom we are saved and in whose name we pray. Amen.